The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I, I had gone through a terrible breakup and I was really writing just for myself. You know, I, I was looking for, for a friend to kind of go through this breakup with and a way to kind of process all of the things I was thinking and feeling. And, you know, I had to do that through adult characters. So I started writing these pages, which then kind of turned into the light we lost novel. And I think once that book came out was when I started to think of myself more as like a writer-publisher hybrid and less of a publisher who also writes some books sometimes. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. New York Times and internationally bestselling author Jill Santopolo spoke with me about finding balance as a writer-publisher, writing as therapy, the universal power of myths, and her latest novel, Stars in an Italian Sky. Jill's debut adult novel, The Light We Lost, was a Reese Witherspoon's book club pick, landed on the New York Times bestsellers list, and has been optioned for film. Her books have been translated into more than 35 languages, and she's also the associate publisher of Philomel Books an imprint of Penguin Young Readers Group, where she's edited critically acclaimed, award-winning and best-selling books, including She Persisted by Chelsea Clinton and Superheroes Are Everywhere by Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Her fourth novel is Stars in an Italian Sky, described as a sweeping story of two star-crossed lovers in post-World War II Italy and a blossoming relationship generations later that will reveal a long-buried family secret. Jill's also the author of three successful children's and young adult series, including the Alec Flint Mysteries, the Sparkle Spa series, and the Follow Your Heart books. She holds a BA in English Literature from Columbia and an MFA in Writing for Children from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. In this file, Jill and I discussed the importance of liking all the things you do, why you can't write unless you know what's been written before, how she got her start in publishing and writing children's books, why love and loss are the touchstones of storytelling. Whether Venus would be on Tinder. Researching for two hours to write a single sentence and a lot more. And a quick note, any microphone issues you may hear during the first couple of minutes of the interview resolve very quickly. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. 
And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Okay, we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by New York Times bestselling author, Jill Santopolo is joining us to talk about all things writing and her latest. I can't wait to uh, pick your brain. How are you feeling today? What's the vibe over there? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. It was a late night. We had a, a big uh, New York City launch party last night for Stars in an Italian Sky at, uh, at City Winery, which was fun. But, you know, I went to sleep late, but I got up this morning and I'm all caffeinated and ready to go. That's cool. Um, yeah. So you are out and about promoting um the latest which i can't wait to talk about and um yeah congrats on the reception it's been really cool to see so aside from being exhausted from your big uh new york launch party what else do you got uh kind of on the radar for the upcoming kind of tour etc so i'm going to south carolina on sunday and there's going to be a sunday sit down dinner that a local chef created that was inspired by Stars in Italian Sky. So I'm super excited for that event. And then I've got a series of four events in Florida, in Palm Beach, Boynton Beach, Vero Beach, and Tampa. And then I'm doing a couple of virtual events, um, I think March 14th and March 21st. And then there's an event in Pennsylvania in April. And then, um, and then some other things over the summer. So so there's a, a big push now and then and then uh, a few things that will carry us through. Very cool. So not not much. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, I mean, I understand that you are a rather um, busy author. I mean, but you also have some other things going on. You have, of course, uh, in addition to your award-winning and, and best-selling novels, you are the author of three successful children's and young adult series. You're also an associate publisher of Philomel Books, an educator, and of course, you're, you're traveling quite a bit. Talk about how you juggle all of these things, because it seems like you've got a ton of stuff going on in addition to um, promoting a book, which must be uh, must keep you, you know, rather, um, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you just have to stay very organized. Very organized um, and make fast decisions. That's another one. But I think, you know, more more to the point is that I just really like all the things that I do. And at various points in time, one or the other of them will take the lead. But every time I've tried to tell myself, oh, you shouldn't do this anymore because it takes up too much time and you know you have all these other things you're doing, I miss that thing. So my, my life has sort of been figuring out the ebb and flow of, okay, so, you know, next week is going to be a really big book week. I'm going to take a step back from publishing slightly. And there's an incredible team at Philomel who can, um, you know, keep things floating while I'm gone. And then I'll come back to the office, take a slight step back on, on book promotion. And then, you know, take a little step forward on writing the next book and, I haven't been um, I haven't been teaching recently, which doesn't mean I won't again soon. But but I've sort of been 
you know, taken a step back on that, even though for a while that was something I did a lot. So I kind of, I kind of just try and figure out um, how to keep an ongoing cycle of balance so that in the end I get to do all of the things that, you know, bring me joy and get me really excited. <laughs> yeah, it's really inspiring actually to hear about. And it, it kind of sounds like what I think author Austin Kleon calls like productive procrastination, <laughs> where you're kind of like procrastinating on one project by working on another project, but you're actually getting, you know, you're still getting things done. You're still, you're still engaged and you're still doing things that you're, that you're passionate about. Sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it takes me a couple years to write a book, but you know, I think it's because I'm working on other things at the same time. And I kind of see that, that non-writing time is productive too, because I'm thinking about things. So then once I actually sit down and start writing the next book, I've spent so much time in my head planning things out and thinking about scenes that I feel like it makes it easier once I actually, you know, put my fingers to the keyboard keys. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, kind of the, that importance of the incubation period to creativity. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your superhero origins and um, kind of how you got to this place as a best-selling author and, and renowned uh, editor. But um, let's talk about kind of take us back a little bit and do the Cliff's notes of, you know, when you felt like writing for the most part was going to be what you put kind of all the irons in the fire on. So, oh goodness, let's see. I mean, I wrote books my entire life. I truly, I joke that um, first grade was a very prolific year for me <laughs> because I just, I really always liked telling stories and have done that truly throughout my life. I think once I graduated from college and was working in publishing and was an assistant and was helping my boss, you know, with all of these wonderful authors and artists and these great stories, it made me think more about like, is there something that I can contribute here? Is there, is there a piece of writing that I can do um, that, you know, might be a story that could touch people's lives, you know, in one way or another. So I think, you know, I started writing, I got, I got a, my first children's book deal. And I think it was 2008. And I wrote children's books for a while. And then there were just stories that I wanted to tell that didn't fit in the children's realm. And I was like, well, I guess maybe I'll try. I'll try writing for adults. And I wasn't really even thinking of publication when I wrote my first adult novel, which is The Light We Lost. Mm -hmm. I, I had gone through a terrible breakup and I was really writing just for myself. You know, I, I was looking for, for a friend to kind of go through this breakup with and a way to kind of process all of the things I was thinking and feeling. And, you know, I had to do that through adult characters. So I started writing these pages, which then kind of turned into the Light We Lost novel. And I think once that book came out was when I started to think of myself more as like a writer publisher hybrid and less of a publisher who also writes some books sometimes. Mm. And that was probably 2017, I think. And then since then, I really do feel like I've had this, this kind of 
almost bifurcated professional identity of, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a novelist sometimes, and I'm a publisher sometimes, but they, they are both kind of equal parts of who I am and what I do. That's cool. Bifurcated. That's a good uh, way to describe it. <laughs> Bifurcated multi-hyphenate. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime that's patreon.com slash the writer files help us start something cool and special keep calm and write on yeah i can't wait to talk about stars in an italian sky of course um you must be coming off the high of that new york uh launch party was there some wine consumed there was, and it was actually um, it was actually very cool because City Winery made stars in an Italian sky wine. So there's a, a label on it um, on the, this, this particular red wine that that is um, the stars in an Italian sky book cover. That's so cool. Yeah, That's, uh, I've never heard of that, but that that is uh, truly something. Uh, I hope you kept like a case. I did. I absolutely did. Perfect. Perfect. That'll age. Well, and you can re- resell those for millions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually thinking of giving them away, but you know. Okay, perfect, perfect. You say potato, I say potato. That's sweet. Yeah, so um, let's talk about kind of the genesis of the latest and understand you know, that this is your first foray into historical fiction, which is very cool. And I always feel like is some of the most laborious and, and painstaking type of fiction to write because, of course, you have to work within the confines of the, the historical period, and, and you've picked a very specific time in history. But yeah, talk a little bit about the genesis and this really cool story about your honeymoon. Yes. So, okay, my husband and I are both half Italian. My father's family is Italian. His mother's family is Italian. But his mother's 
um, came over to the U.S. much more recently. So she was born in Rome and then came here. So uh, my husband has a lot of cousins in Italy. And some of them came to our wedding, but not everyone. So as part of our honeymoon, he said to me, why don't we go to Italy and you can meet the rest of the family, which I was very excited to do. And we also decided to stop by and say hello to my Italian publisher in Milan. So we, you know, we're hanging out with her and she said, well, you know, what are you working on next? And I was like, I don't really know. I'm finishing up, you know, I think I was finishing up my last book, everything after at that point. So I was like, I don't really have a next yet. I'm, I'm kind of finishing up this, this novel that's due in a few months. And she said, you know, I think you should write about Italy. I think you should write about an Italian family story. And I was like, okay, Christina, sure. But not really intending to do that. Um, And then we went to visit my cousin, my husband's cousin. And he is in his 80s. And he is the man who would have been the Count of Saluzzo and the Marquis of Rocca di Baldi had the Italian nobility been something that, you know, was continued legally in Italy. But, you know, he's not um, because of the institutional referendum in 1946 that abolished the monarchy and, and along with it, the nobility. And I hadn't known much about that, but the man who would be count, his his younger sister um, was telling us about the institutional referendum and how it was decided in 1946 and that it was the first time that women voted in Italy. And I thought, this is so fascinating. Like what an interesting time and what it must have been like to have been this man, but also anyone who was expecting that they were going to live this life, they were going to have this title. And then all of a sudden by popular vote, their entire futures changes. And then I was thinking, well, so, so that's my husband's side of the family. My side of the family, um, we're descended from shoemakers from Southern Italy. And my husband and I joke all the time that had we gotten together, it would have been such a scandal if, you know, the, the granddaughter of a shoemaker and the, you know, grandson of a count or whatever get together. Right. So I was thinking, so I was thinking about the, the counts and the marquis whose sort of future disappears. But then I was also thinking about you know, the people like on my side of the family who probably did want this referendum to happen and and wanted the monarchy to be abolished. And, you know, what happens if, if those two people were in love, if their families were totally different class-wise and, you know, were on different sides of political issues, but they loved each other. And then this referendum is happening and it's the first time when we can vote. And like, what is that what does that do to their relationship and how do these external sort of pressures change their relationship or challenge their relationship in different ways so then i started thinking you know maybe christina is right maybe i can write a novel about a family set uh in part at least in italy so that's kind of how it started yeah as you put it when promised power is eliminated by popular vote that's a, that's a really interesting uh, premise. And then, of course, you're writing it from two different uh, points of view, from a pa- from past and present storylines, right? Mm-hmm. It's been described as a sweeping story of two star-crossed lovers in post-World War II Italy 
and a blossoming relationship generations later that will reveal a long buried um, family secret. Uh, I thought it was cool that Lisa Scottolini, who's also been on this show, said that she was swept away. Hmm. You'll savor, savor this story like a fine wine. Was she at your launch party, Marjan? Sadly, no. <laughs> Maybe you should send her a bottle if not. Yeah, right. I was planning to, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. But, uh, of course, Kirkus called it a romantic sweeping story that's satisfying and heartbreaking at the same time. And you've talked in the past about kind of, and of course, you uh, speak about storytelling and writing. Talk a little bit about kind of, I, I think you've mentioned like the power or at least the importance of like the basis of mythology or, or the study of mythology to kind of the kind of an early recommendation for, for young or uh, aspiring writers to kind of like study you know, Shakespeare and mythology and so on and so forth. How, kind of talk a little bit about how you, um, or the importance of that to your own work. Yeah. So I, I think it was a writing professor that I had who once said, you can't write unless you know what has been written before you. And that everything we write today stands on the shoulders of the people who have, you know, written already, because you have to make decisions whether you're going to continue in a tradition or break tradition. And you can't make those decisions unless you know what's there first. So um, I think it's really interesting to me to sort of go back and go through the ages of storytelling and see how people told stories and what stories have still remained, you know, centuries later and what stories still resonate. Because to me, one of the coolest things about storytelling is that you know, it really touches on on people's humanity. And this is a slight digression, but when The Light We Lost um, was being sold, and it was sold in 35 languages, um, I was getting messages from publishers all over the world saying, your story about first love reminded me of my own first love, or this piece of grief that you outlined in your book reminded me about when this happened in my life. And it was fascinating to me because these were people who were living, you know, in different countries, speaking different languages, practicing different religions with different governments. I mean, it just, there was, it wasn't like there was a, you know, any similarity tying people together except for the shared humanity that we all have, you know, that we are all one human race and we all experience love and we all experience loss. And that, that is kind of a touchstone, um, for so many people in story is those things that make us human, you know, that we all share as humans. And I think, you know, the stories that, that have lasted for so long are the ones that really tap into that that tap into, you know, love between parent and child or love between siblings or love between, you know, um, a couple or stories that, that help us process grief or, you know, sadness or sorrow. And I think, you know, seeing how people have done that through the ages and what has worked and what has stayed with us is a really interesting way to then bring story into like contemporary times in your own work. And with uh, Stars in an Italian Sky, I read, reread a lot of, a lot of mythology, a lot of, 
Greek and Roman mythology and sort of have Luca, one of the characters in the contemporary time, sort of reinterpreting that mythology for today in his artwork. So kind of what would, you know, the goddess Diana look like today? What would Venus look like today if they were in contemporary times? Um, you know, is Venus on Tinder? <laughs> so <laughs> probably, right? Um, mm-hmm. So so kind of thinking about how archetypes would shift and change throughout throughout time, but the essence of them is still the same. Very cool. The universe, those universal themes for sure touch a nerve for all of us, right? Yeah. From Romeo and Juliet to um, today with uh, your latest. Yeah, talk a little bit about, I mean, I understand you went through like a pretty serious uh, fact checking and research mm-hmm. period before you were kind of like uh, getting into the pages and get it, you know, talk a little bit about moving from that phase of the research process, which sounds pretty, pretty in depth to, you know, really getting into a flow state. Like what, when you're finally sitting down, getting pages and worrying less about train schedules. Talk about, you know, like what your best writing day looks like. You know, so for this book, I did, I did pre-research just so I kind of knew about the world. Um, I read a lot about winemaking. I read a lot about post-war Italy. Um, I watched YouTube videos. I spoke to, you know, professors in Italy who were so gracious when a random American author just emailed them out of the blue and was like, Hey, can you help me with my novel, please? Um, But then also, you know, once I started with that, I felt like I at least had a framework to know where I was bumping up against like boundaries in different ways. But I would still, you know, be writing along and and then say something about like wanting her to put on lipstick. And then I was like, wait, was there lipstick available in Italy post-war? What was the global supply chain for lipstick like post-war? You know, when did it come back to Europe? Like, was it ever gone? What happened? And then I sort of went in like a two hour wormhole of uh, researching makeup during and after the war in Europe, you know, and then what colors they would wear on their lips if that were, if they did have makeup or whatever. So, so there were definitely things where like I would be writing and writing and then, you know, feeling like, okay, I kind of have a handle on this. And then I would come up against something like that and, and, um, you know, do a deep dive just so I could write literally one sentence, you know, it's like two hours to write one sentence. Um, but I, I found that, I found that to be, to be a lot of fun. Um, and then there were definitely things where I was like, I think this makes sense. I'm just going to put it in here now and make myself a note to like confirm that my gut feeling here is correct. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't, but you know, kind of depending on how much time I had to write that day and whether I had like an inkling of what might be the right answer, you know, I, I sometimes stopped to research and sometimes just kind of made myself a note. And then when I was finished, would go back and, and say like, okay, let's, let's check on this. Like, is this actually how they would tie their hair back in a ponytail in 1946? Did they wear ponytails in 1946? You know? Interesting. Yeah. So, the, so when you're really getting into flow state, uh, like what's your best, what's your best writing day look or smell like? 
coffee. Let's start with coffee. Tea. I'm a tea, tea. a tea drinker. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I I feel like for me the best writing day is kind of like I've taken care of the things that are on my mind so that I've cleared it enough to really focus on writing. Because if I know that if I have a to do list of like call to make my daughter's you know pediatrician birthday checkup or whatever or you know bring this check to the bank or whatever it is that like if that's all in in my head I'm not gonna have a good writing day so I try and spend like an hour or so in the morning just doing all of that so that it's out of my brain and I don't have to think about it anymore and then you know it kind of sit down probably around like 10 30 and start by usually like rereading the last chapter or so. So I kind of know where I am and get myself back into the manuscript and then write for a while until I get hungry for lunch and then eat lunch and then write, you know, come back and write for a few more hours and then take a walk to kind of clear my brain so I can get out of the novel and back into the real world. Hmm. So you take a walk after you write to clear your head, Mm -hmm. to come back to reality. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. I haven't heard that before because I, because I, you know, I mean, I know lots of famous writers have, you know, uh, talked about the importance of walking for their process. And of course, I know we've talked a lot about exor- the importance of exercise on this show, but that's very cool. So, uh, yeah, I got a couple, I got one quick fun one for you. If you could have dinner with any author from any era to your favorite place in the world, uh, who would you take? Where would you take them? All expenses paid. It's on me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, well, my, my favorite book, literally since I was probably 11, when I got this book as a gift for my birthday, um, is Betty Smith, who wrote A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I can't, I probably have read that book like 14 times or something. Um, and I feel like if I get one shot, it would have to be her. Um, and as far as where we would go, I think... I mean, if all expenses are paid, right, I've got to go somewhere exciting. Like, <laughs> I've never been, to, I've never been to Australia. So, so if I'm getting a trip, maybe, maybe Betty Smith and I are going to Australia. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, do you have a, a destination in Australia in mind or just like, just hang out and like hit the town? <laughs> I mean, I probably the beach, right? Maybe Great Barrier Reef. Maybe, maybe oh. she and I will go skydiving together. Oh, wow. That's a new one. Yeah, right? Betty Smith. I like it. <laughs> I'm not sure how she'd feel about that, but <laughs> it's a little bit out outside. Like maybe you could do something crazy where you go skydiving and like eat or like try to drink stuff while you're falling, or I don't know. <laughs> well, then then we have a real celebration after we've survived. <laughs> there, you know, there you go. Once you've survived, then you go out for drinks. Exactly. All right, All right I got it. Um, one final uh, pearl of wisdom for writers on just how to keep going. Pearl of wisdom on how to keep going. So one one trick I have if I get blocked on something is to go back to the last place where writing felt good, space everything else down, and restart from there and go in a new direction Hmm. and see if it feels better. Love that. And then something else that my grad school friends and I used to do was what we called go on the bet. Um, B-E-T, bet. And Mm -hmm. what that meant was you had a partner and like I would, 
I would make you my partner and we would say, and I would say to you, I bet you I can write and then you pick like 10 pages in the next week or 20 pages by next Tuesday or whatever it is. And then if you don't hit your number of pages, you have to donate $20 to a cause you don't believe in. (laughs) I love that. Wow. That's a good one. I never missed my pages because the cause that I chose as my cause I didn't believe in that I was going to donate to was so abhorrent to me (laughs) that I was like, I just have to write these pages. It doesn't matter if I stay up till three o'clock in the morning because there is no way those people are going to get my money. Amazing. That is a really good impetus. I love it. I know you got to run. I will point at your home base, the latest, um, and jillsantapolo.com. We appreciate you. Come back in the future. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.